0: Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, welcome to the
1: Bible Questions podcast, Brian and Jeff, along with you. Really excited to have you along. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Today we're going to be looking at questions from time to time, we like to look back at questions or or specific themes of questions that have been answered over the years. And, you know, Jeff, I guess kind of the premise, the name of our podcast is Bible Questions. So it's probably good once in a while just to have podcasts where we just do nothing but answer questions, right?
0: True. Well, and the thing I like about this series where we focus on a particular theme, you know, we've, you know, over the years we've received, you know, literally thousands and thousands of questions. Some of them very unique, but some of them keep reoccurring. And and sometimes a lot of them associated with a given theme or topic, which hopefully our listeners will benefit from, you know, given the variety of questions related to a particular topic like we're talking about today, because in many cases they may have the same question or, or a similar question.
1: That's right. In fact, today we're going to be talking about questions about promises. So promises of God, promises from people. We're just going to, as Jeff mentioned, kind of we picked a variety of questions that people have submitted over the years on this topic. And so hopefully you'll find it interesting. And as Jeff just said, you know, uh, there are probably some of these questions that all of us have had at some point. So we'll do our best to to tell you what the Bible says about it. So to start out, you know, what does the Bible say about promises? Well, for one thing, the term or the word promise and promises is definitely used, but more often you'll see it referred to as an oath. And they're both really kind of talking about the same thing, right? It's like you, where you make a commitment to do something. You promise you will do something, or maybe that you will do not do something. So if you were to look up the Greek definition of the word promise, it just simply means pledge or a divine assurance of good. So what's interesting, and our listeners may know this, but I'll just briefly mention that when you look in, for instance, the Greek, Much like in, let's say, the English language and other foreign languages, you have nouns and verbs and so forth. So often it's not like one Greek word covers everything. I mean, it could be just one, but often it's more than one Greek word covering different little nuances. So in this case, we see that here where if you and I make a promise, that's considered a pledge. But if God makes a promise, there's a special Greek word that's used when that happens where it's a divine assurance of good. In other words, it's guaranteed. It will happen. And we'll get more into that in a minute. Now, when it comes to oath, if you look at the definition of the word oath in Hebrew, it means something sworn. So just kind of simply something sworn. In Greek, it means kind of an interesting definition, Jeff, offense or enclosure, that which restrains a person, a limit. And I don't know that I've ever looked up this definition, but when I first read it, I thought, what is that saying? And then I dug a little deeper and found out, well, when you make a promise, you are enclosing yourself like a fence to keep that promise. So that that's just kind of the general definitions. Now, when you think about promises in terms of man one thing that we'll kind of bring out in this podcast is that we have to be careful not to be rash with our promises. It is so easy to say, I promise, I will, I guarantee you. Or some people would say, I swear, I will, blah, blah, blah. Okay, And, and at times we can make rash promises. And what we will see as we go through this is that God expects man to take promises or oaths very seriously. And so as we get into some of these questions and answers, some of this will come out as it relates to what God says about oaths. And and what we'll see is that the Bible is very clear, and there are very clear principles on oaths or promises. So we'll get more into that. Now, how about God? How about God's promises? Well, as I just mentioned, they're guaranteed. God's promises are always fulfilled. And so let's just take a look. Jeff, could I get you to read Joshua chapter 23 and verse 14? And here, Joshua addresses the promises of God.
0: Certainly. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed.
1: Yeah, I really like how he twice says, not one thing has failed. Not one word has failed. They had the benefit, of course, of looking backwards and and they understood what promises God made. And they could clearly see that what Joshua was saying was true, that everything God said he would do, he had done. Why was that important? Well, you want to trust the Lord. You want to have confidence. It's important that they understood God never breaks his promises. Now, Solomon also said over in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56, "'Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised.'" there has not failed one word of his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. So we see many examples, once again, of where God made a promise under the old law. Maybe it applied to the new law, or maybe it applied to something that would happen during that time. And once again, in fact, it's interesting, Jeff, we were in one of our podcasts, the previous podcast, we were talking about miracles. And when, there was a, somebody who claimed to be a prophet, right, which would have been a spiritual gift that God would have given them. One of the tests was uh, that God told them to, to apply was, did what they say come true or not? And if what they said didn't come true, well, then they're obviously a false prophet. And so in this particular case, once again with God, they could clearly see that he kept uh, everything. All right, one final point in our intro, and then we'll get into the questions. And that is that one thing that we also learn from the scriptures is that some promises are conditional. In other words, these are promises from God where certain terms have to be met in order to obtain the promise. So there's a lot of those kinds of conditional promises. A couple of examples. One is, you know, where God promised the Israelites that he would continue to watch over them and bless them as long as they were faithful. And so one example of this is if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and read verses 6 through 12. We're just going to look at verse 9 where it says God is faithful and keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so that's a condition. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2 talks about how our sin can separate us from God. And so sin certainly will affect whether or not God would continue to bless and listen to your prayers and those kinds of things. Uh, We talked about Joshua. If you look in Joshua chapter 23 verses 3 through 13, if you want to make a note of that, we won't read that section but if you read through that, Joshua 23, 3-13, you'll see that God said, God promised he would continue to drive out the nations in the land of Canaan if they were faithful. What did that mean? Well, they had a responsibility to go and fight these nations and drive them out of the land of Canaan as God promised. And even if these nations were more powerful, had a better army, let's say, better weapons, it didn't matter. With God on their side, they would conquer them, but they had to do their part. So if they refused to drive them out, then God wasn't going to help them. God wasn't just going to do it. So anyhow, that's just a couple of examples. And, you know, if you think about the law of Christ that we live under today and, and the fact that there are conditional promises that apply to us today, a couple of examples are Mark 16, 16, right? We can be saved if we believe and are baptized. He that believes and is baptized, right? So that's a condition. We can be forgiven if we confess our sins, First John 1, 9. If we can faith, confess our sins, it says "He God is faithful and just to forgive us of this. And then Revelation 2.10, Jesus talks about be faithful unto death, right? So if we are faithful unto death, Jesus has promised a crown of life. So Jeff, just a few uh, introductory remarks about promises. I'll turn it over to you for anything else that you would like to add.
0: Yeah, a lot of different uh, facets, if you will. In fact, for our podcast today, I think you picked, uh, I believe it was like eight, different questions very diverse (laughs) so uh yeah let's just get into it
1: yeah let's do And, and so the first one was submitted anonymously and this person said is there any circumstance or ask excuse me is there any circumstance when an individual is released from a promise does the promise become void when the individual who was promised to has passed does the promise have to release the promiser I know, quote-unquote, it is better not to make a promise at all than to make a promise and not keep it. And they reference Ecclesiastes 5.5. They go on to say, but is there a way to be released once the promise has been made? They finish up by saying, I've made a promise to a loved one, and I intend to keep the promise as long as it stands. If the converse of the promise is not a sin, is there a way for the promise to be removed without sinning, and breaking the promise. So, Jeff, it almost seems to me that the real focus here, of course, is can the promise be removed, number one, right? And number two, breaking a promise, what does that look like? So anyhow.
0: Right, yeah, good point. Yeah, as you said, there's a lot uh, bundled up in that one uh, question. So, you know, as we've already mentioned, for starters, first and foremost, we need to be very careful what we say, how we say it, what we promise, what we vow, right? Uh, as Ecclesiastes five five indicates, Uh, you know, and other scriptures as well, to include like Deuteronomy chapter 23. which says, beginning with verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, (laughs) if you keep your mouth shut, (laughs) I would say, uh, it shall not be a sin to you. For that which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Uh, something similar. Uh, Matthew chapter five, beginning with verse twenty-two, in part. Again you have heard that it was said to those vote, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say unto you, do not take an oath at all, neither by heaven, nor by. For it is the throne of God, nor by earth it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply, or let what you say be simply, yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the devil. So, taking of a vow. And of course, in that particular context, and there's some other questions we'll get into a little bit later on, uh, about, you know, adding to your vow, you know, I swear by blah, blah. We'll get more into that later. But in terms of the importance, be careful what you say, what you promise. Uh, in that passage, as well as James chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, neither by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Are you going to do this, Jeff? Yes, I promise. I'm going to do it. <laughs> right? That should, that should end it there. So, you know, if you make a promise and break it, generally speaking, you've sinned, you know, and you need to repent. And in some ways, that's just like anything else that you do that you shouldn't have done or that you should do, but you didn't do. You know, I'm sorry, you know, apologize, repent, you know, and if it involves God, of course, and if it involves someone else you made the promise to, you know, you got to go through that process, you know, asking for their forgiveness Um, at first, when I was thinking about this question, I couldn't really think of any passages where, you know, would allow certain circumstances for the promise maker to be released. But Brian, I I know you did some additional research on that. We'll go to that in just a moment. Uh, dead people can't keep promises. Sorry. Unless of course you're referring to like, when you die, you have a last will and testament, which performs some sort of a promise. Based on inheritance of property, you know, legal disposition, of course, of, of one's estate, uh, and as Brian, as we kind of get into your the research you did, uh, you know, there may be some you know circumstances as well that might release the promisor, but we'll I'll, I'll hold off commenting on that until I give you a chance to uh, share your research.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I did the same thing you did, Jeff. When I first looked at this question, I started racking my brain. Can I think of any examples of where somebody was released from a promise, I could not. So using a study aid, it's great to have study aids, right? I was, I looked up, you know, what passages talked about promises and oaths and I found a few occasions where it was acceptable to release somebody from a promise. So when you, um, what we'll see here is, is examples of where based on a mutual agreement, two parties in the bible agreed to be released from an oath and then i also found a couple of occasions one where a father could overrule a vow made by his daughter and a husband could overrule a vow made by his wife so let's just quickly dive into this if you go over to genesis chapter 24 and our listeners may know this story already you know that abraham when he was in the land of canaan wanted to find a son for uh, find a wife excuse me for his son isaac and he did not want it to be one of the Canaanites. God forbid them from marrying Canaanite women. And so Abraham asked the oldest servant of his house to take an oath to not take a wife for his son from the daughters of the Canaanites, but instead to go back to his home country and find a wife for Isaac there. And so the servant astutely, I think, asked you know, Abraham, like, hey, what happens if the woman I find doesn't want to come back with me? doesn't wanna follow me back to Canaan. So Abraham said, if you look in verse eight of Genesis 24, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So that was what he uh, he agreed to do. Now we see another example in Joshua chapter two, another story many might be familiar with where Israel, the Israelites were going to conquer Jericho. And there were you know some spies sent in by joshua in advance to kind of scope things out if you will and this is how they came across somebody named uh, rahab well word got out if you will that there were some spies and so of course you can imagine those in jericho were looking for these spies rahab agreed to hide them and then so if you go to joshua chapter 2 we see another example of where there was an agreement to nullify an oath and so in this particular case, if you're familiar with the story, Rahab agreed to help hide the men of Israel, and they made an oath to spare her family. But they told her they would only spare her family if she met two conditions. So Joshua chapter 2. Jeff, could I get you to read that uh, for us? Joshua two seventeen through 21.
0: Okay. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever's with you in the house, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of yours... Then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, course, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So she agreed.
1: I will release you from this oath if I don't meet your terms and conditions, if you will. Uh, the next kind of vows that people that could be nullified, if you will, kind of center around As I mentioned earlier, a father could overrule a vow made by his young daughter. And if he did so, the Lord would release her from the vow. So if you turn in your Bibles over to Numbers chapter 30, beginning in verse 2, here it says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So that was the law. Going on to verse 3. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house house in her youth and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But, verse 5, if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. Now, if we skip down to verse 8, we see that the husband had the same ability to to override, if you will, a vow. So it says, verse 8, but if her husband overrules her, this is speaking about a husband's wife, if a husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow, which she took and which she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. So we see this kind of unique circumstance under the old law, And I want to emphasize the old law because we do not see these same uh, laws or uh, exceptions, if you will, to a law in the New Testament. We just don't. It's not there. So while this was part of the old law, we can't really say, well, this would also apply today. Mm, No, because it's not in the New Testament and we don't live under the old law any longer. And so anyhow, Jeff, that's uh, a few examples that I found are the only ones. There might be others. But anyhow, kind of some unique circumstances, though, right? Not just yourself saying, release me from this
0: Right, and good points. You know, Brian, the only other thing I can think of and I don't know if I could produce a verse for it, so it might be a little bit of a, a assumption. Uh and, and that would be if you make a promise to do something. Uh and there are some, you know, circumstances beyond your control that act, you know basically prevent you from doing that. I mean, you would if you could, but you can't. Um I would tend to think those would be acceptable as well. I mean, for instance, we're told, and a little bit of a parallel, you know, we're told to assemble together, worship with the saints, you know, Sunday, partake of the Lord's Supper, etc. And, you know, in general, when we become Christians, we kind of promise, yes, we're going to do what Jesus says. That includes assembling together. But, you know, if I'm sick, right, or I have a car accident on the way to services, or there's a blizzard, you know, circumstances beyond my control. You know, we're not, you know, we're, we're in some ways excused from that uh, activity. I would suspect something similar would apply in the case of promises. Although I'm not exactly certain I could point to a scripture to back that up. Yeah, and you know, it's
1: interesting to me, Joe, I, I kind of feel like in some respects, I, I like the verse that you gave James five twelve, right? That let like your yay be a or yes, be yes and no be no. Because it's really, to me, a matter of trust. So we have some, in our culture, at least here in America, we have some statements like, our word is our bond, right? Or our word should be our bond, right? So in other words, if a man says he'll do something, you should be able to count that he will in fact do it. Or sometimes people will say something like, you know, so-and-so is a man of his word. So In other words, if John says it or whomever, you can just count on it. You can trust it, right? So it's a matter of trust in my mind. The opposite, I think, is also true. We talked a little bit about people that say, I swear this, or I swear that. Well, sometimes people have to swear because they're not trustworthy. (laughs) So they have to convince you that, well, this time I really mean it. So anyhow, there's that kind of nuance there as well.
0: Good points. All righty. Yolanda uh, submits the next one for you. I'm not a Bible scholar or anything. I love the Lord. And a lot of time I get confused. God Says he is not a confusing God, and also my question is, as a believer, God has promised us victory. Uh, Philippians chapter one verse six: uh, Be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So why should we worry? So is it saying that when you become a believer, you're automatically locked in for heaven because of his promise? On the other note, God tells a believer in Revelation 3.16, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Sounds like you're going straight to hell. That's where I get confused because he made a promise for the believer. But when the believer is saved, but they're still carnal, etc., I thought was going to begin a good work in that individual until Jesus come. How can you explain in plain, simple words for me to understand?
1: Yeah, I credit Yolanda for just wondering about this, right? And you and I, have Jeff, talked in the past about how we are impressed when people actually study the Bible and they see something that's, A, confusing or potentially contradictory. And they wonder about it and they ask about it. So good for her. Well, one thing that we know uh, cannot be true is that God is not or has never promised us, quote-unquote, victory in, in Philippians 1.6 to the extent that we would therefore be automatically locked in for heaven. Uh, in Philippians 1.6, if you look at the what that passage is saying, it's speaking of the good work of God that he was doing through Christians. And so Paul, in this particular case, is complimenting the church at Philippi for the work that they were doing. And he makes this statement that this good work that God wanted done, he was, in fact, doing through Christians. And that that work would continue until, as Yolanda referenced, the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then, of course, God's work would be complete because when Jesus returns and we have the judgment, the work is complete in, in that regard. Now, as for being automatically, quote unquote, automatically locked in for heaven, we know this is not possible because it's only through our faithfulness and obedience to God's word that will allow us to be saved. And we know this from many passages. For instance, uh, Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. So we were talking about the conditional nature of promises, and this is an example of that. Now, Calvinists would have you believe that if you're one of the elect or one that they claim God chose to save, then you are automatically locked in for heaven in their mind because God will ensure you persevere. Uh, So something called perseverance of the saints. Well, that's not taught anywhere in the scriptures. And so, she also mentions Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16. That reference is not to a person, but it is to the uh, uh, statement that Jesus made to the church of the Laodiceans. And it's really a good principle for us to learn as well, is that God does not want us to be lukewarm, as she mentioned. I might liken that to like a part-time or maybe a half-hearted Christian. Uh, He wants our complete commitment. So, I think the lesson for us to learn there is we can't say, well, I'm doing most of God's will, and that's good enough, right? God understands I'm not perfect. The Bible doesn't say that. God expects us to be perfect in the sense of being fully obedient to his will. And then if we or when we fail to do that, well, like we see in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins and he'll forgive us. And so God wants that. He's not interested in lukewarm. Anyhow, Jeff, that's how I would answer that question.
0: Well, and I think that's a good example of, you know, when people read through the Scriptures and they come across one saying, if you will, or one passage, uh, and they keep reading and somewhere else they find another one that seems to contradict, points to the value of good Bible study techniques, one of which is try to find all the passages, all the passages that deal with a particular topic and then try to properly harmonize them. You know, given the context and the audience and the definition of words, uh, et cetera. So I think this is probably a really good example uh, of that to keep in mind for our listeners as well.
1: It definitely is. All right. The next question, Jeff, was submitted anonymously. And this person asks According to Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus said that we should stop making oaths or vows, but what if we have to sign contracts or exchange marriage vows? And is it a sin to say, as God is my witness, I promise to, or I swear to God, even if God sees in my heart that I'm totally honest with it?
0: Very interesting. Right. And this, I think, is another good example where people may think a passage says something or people may claim a passage says something when it doesn't quite In fact, Brian, can you go ahead and for our listeners, uh, read Matthew chapter 5, verses 33
1: through 37? Sure. Here it says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black but let your yes be
0: yes and your no no for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I know, you know, we read that er- this earlier, but I wanted to, you know, refresh it in our listeners' mind. If you look through the passage carefully, Jesus is not prohibiting making a promise. No, not he's not prohibiting making a vow of something or promising something. What he is prohibiting is augmenting what would be a simple yes or no yes i promise to no i promise not to etc by swearing on some object swearing on some person etc and evidently you know the jews in jesus day and people today as we'll see in a few moments you know had some kind of traditions that you know some of their oaths or their swearings could be considered binding and some not. In fact, there's an interesting companion passage further on in the Gospel of Matthew, over in chapter 23, uh, beginning with verse 16. I won't read it, but I'll just kind of hit some highlights. Uh, And he, of course, is in this context condemning the scribes and the Pharisees who had various man-made traditions. I guess one of the traditions they had was whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. So you could go to a Jew and say, hey, are you going to do this? And the Jew could say, oh, I swear by the temple that yes, I will. It's like, and then he internally, uh, meaning he could you know break that vow without consequence. But if he said, oh, I swear by the gold of the temple, okay, yeah, he has to do what he said. No, Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. Uh, whoever swears by the altar, yeah, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. Somewhere there. Uh, he who swears... Uh, verse 21. He who swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. Again, they were trying to make these arbitrary distinctions... And arguably, I would suspect it's probably in their dealings with Gentiles, (laughs) because fellow Jews would know the difference, I suspect. Or they could say, yes, I promise to do, and I swear on, you know, this thing, uh, when in reality it's pointless, it's meaningless. And so that's what Jesus is condemning. Um, You know, we have kind of similar expressions today. uh, Like, uh, and I'll give you a few that I, I, I was able to, you know, think up. You know, I swear on a stack of Bibles, blah, blah, blah. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by heaven. This is true. I swear by all the gold in Fort Knox. Uh, Or, uh, as God is my witness, blah, blah, this happened. Or, uh, I promise to do something. Or, you know, on my Lord Jesus Christ, blah, blah, you know, something happened. And bottom line, Jesus basically says, don't do that. You know, as you said earlier, be a man of your word. Or a woman of your word, say what you mean, mean what you say. And a simple yes or no will suffice, you know, when you make a promise or a vow to do something. Brian?
1: Yeah, and it goes, I think it goes right back to that trust element we were talking about, right? And I don't know, it's just been my experience over the years when people feel the need to convince you they will keep their promise. It's because likely they don't keep their promises. <laughs>
0: Indeed. All right, so uh, the next one, question for you, comes from Elaine. She starts off by saying, I am confused, (laughs) which, you know, I I love it when people, you know, write in with that. It's like, you know, they're willing to admit, yeah, I've read this. I'm confused. You know, I, I need some help here. So she says, I'm confused. When reading the Bible, I'm not sure if the promises in them are for me today, or was it for the Israelites or prophets in those times?
1: Yeah, such a good statement uh, by Elaine because I think we all can relate to Elaine's confusion. You know, at times as we read the scriptures and we see something, we kind of scratch our heads as well. Is this talking about just them, or or is this sort of a for everyone, for all time kind of thing? And so, yeah, it can be difficult to know uh, if it applies uh, to whom. And so, you know, over in Jeremiah, let's I think we could look at an example that'll kind of help us understand. How we can potentially tell who it's addressing. And so, just one example that I thought about was over in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, regarding the new covenant, where God promised that he would make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah uh, a new covenant. And so, what's interesting when you look at that section, notice he says that he would make this promise with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, on the surface, It's like, okay, well, there you go. That one's easy. It's it's made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, it's not that simple, right? Because if you go over to Hebrews chapter 8, we find out that this promise was not actually made to the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah because by that time, this was fulfilled through Christ. So in other words, the new covenant did not come about until Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, the old law had been fulfilled. Uh, The 12 tribes no longer existed. I mean, they had been carried off into captivity hundreds of years before then, so they didn't even exist anymore in that sense. So we know that, that God could not have been literally making that promise to the house of Israel and Judah, or the Israelites, if you will. But the Bible, as we continue to study, teaches us that the promises made to spiritual Israel and Judah which are all Christians. How do we know this? Well, if we look in Galatians chapter 3, and Jeff, if I could get you to read that, Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29, it'll talk to us about this element of spiritual Israel, if you will.
0: So, of course, this is Paul writing to the Galatians. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither free nor slave. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So all of us who are Christians
1: today are considered to be Abraham's seed. Now some, when they think about the descendants of Abraham correctly understand that the Israelites, right? Israel and Judah came from Abraham through his lineage. So there's no doubt there's that element of it. But what this passage is teaching us is that under Christ, if we are obedient to the gospel, we're baptized, right? we put on Christ in baptism, that we are now also considered Abraham's seed. Why? Because we are heirs according to the promise that through Jesus, this new covenant would be brought about, and we could all, Jews, Gentiles, male, female, everyone— can become children of God through our obedience. And so this is just one example that kind of illustrates that it it sometimes takes additional study which may include you know like I mentioned earlier the the use of some study aids or something like you know a reputable commentary to fully understand whom is being addressed because it's not always evident. Uh, by things like this so i just put together a few suggestions jeff you may have some others on you know how we can make a proper determination on if something once again applies to us or everyone or it was just specific people that it applied to so first i would suggest that when you read a promise look at the immediate context to understand if it's clear that the promise is being made to a specific person or a group of people so for example genesis chapter 50 verse 25 says then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. Well, we if you continue to look on, uh, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, we're told in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones here with you. So Moses made sure that that oath was kept, but that oath was specifically for the Israelites and nobody else. And and it's evident from that passage. Okay, so that's, that's tip number one. Tip number two is if you're unable to determine who the promise was made to, then study to see if that promise is fulfilled at some point in the future. So for instance, the promise of the Messiah, and there were several, right, under the Old Covenant, was fulfilled, as we just mentioned, when Jesus came to the earth under the new covenant. So an example, there's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So we might ask, well, is he talking about the Gentiles who were around then? Or is it talking about Gentiles potentially in the future? Well, that question's answered for us if we go over to Matthew chapter 12. And Jeff, I'm going to ask you to read one more time, if you wouldn't mind, uh, verses 14 through 21 of Matthew 12, where we can see where this was fulfilled.
0: Sure. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved and whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, until he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust.
1: So I like how in verse 17, it makes it really clear that this is a fulfillment of that prophecy that we read in Isaiah. And so clearly, when we read that, we now understand that that prophecy applied to the Gentiles under Christ. When starting with Cornelius and his household, God taught Peter, and Peter ultimately brought it back to the apostles in Jerusalem, that the gospel was for all. Because God allowed those Gentiles to speak in tongues, for instance. And he proved and showed that the gospel is for all, and that the Gentiles were also accepted into the kingdom. The last tip I would give is that, you know, if you're, you're still unable to determine who the promise was made to, then you use study aids if you can. So look at what scholars say and maybe one or more commentaries. Sometimes those commentaries won't agree. They'll say, I think, or this seems to be, or it could be this. Ultimately, we then have to draw our own conclusions based on our own study. And so anyhow, Jeff, that, those are kind of some tips I have. I'll, I'll turn it over to you for any others that you might have.
0: No, can't really think of any others. Yeah, the, the fact that, uh, you know, you look at the audience, you know, who's who's speaking, who's spoken to, you know, historical context. And as you indicated, you know, looking at other passages that talk on the same subject. And as you said, in some cases, there still may be a little bit of doubt. So don't necessarily say, well, the Bible gives this promise to me and therefore I'm going to latch on to it. When, yeah, you know, the evidence is kind of iffy. Yeah, just, just be careful uh, and, and use proper Bible hermeneutics to use the fancy term or, or Bible study practices. Yes, exactly. Okay, next question for you, Jeff, comes from Shirley. Shirley says, I promise God
1: that I will not repeat the mistake, but after one year I did the same mistake, which I have already promised not to do. I feel guilty. I said sorry to Jesus, and I again promised, I will not do this again. Will he forgive me?
0: Which, which is, has some interesting things. You know, certainly, God, if we are, you know, faithful children of God, when we sin, not if we sin, you know, when we repent, you know, God will forgive us. So, that's, so we, we have that established. Uh, but in this particular case, I kind of went down the, the simplistic path. It said, stop promising the same thing. And breaking the same promise, right? There you
1: go. That's the solution. (laughs) I
0: promise I will never drink alcohol again. I promise I'll never touch another cigarette. I promise I'll never look at another woman, whatever. It's like, well, hold on a second. In some ways, it's kind of foolish to promise. I will never, whatever, or I will always blah. Because number one, you've not only sinned by committing the quote-unquote fault or mistake, you know, assuming it, it is indeed a sin, but now you've also compounded it by you've broken a promise, which is a sin, which is God. Kind of silly, you know. For, for this kind of person, you know, learn from what happened, you know. And what I might offer in terms of a simple answer, you know, instead of saying I promise I will never X, you know, maybe pray, you know, Lord, help me avoid this mistake in the future, right? In fact, Brian, uh, quite frankly, I was reminded of Peter. I mean, he, he stuck his foot in his mouth. <laughs> I didn't realize he was doing it at the time. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 33 through 35. Peter answered and said unto him, Jesus, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And of course, this is right after Jesus, this is on the night he was betrayed, said, you're all going to forsake me. And Peter said, not me, Lord. I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said, surely I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And of course, good old Peter, he doubles down. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So there's a good example. What happened to Peter? Well, (laughs) Peter denied Jesus, just like Jesus said, and went out and wept bitterly repented, was restored, etc. So as I said, be careful what you promise because you may be boxing yourself into a corner that you can't get out of or that you will break and you certainly don't want to do that. Brian?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I came across this exact section of scripture as I was looking through some of the different passages on oaths where it talks about, I was just trying to find it, because I think it was in Luke's account, or it could have been Matthew's. But it talks about the fact that Peter, after he was questioned, like, aren't you one of the followers that was with Jesus? And it said, I think it was either the second or third time they kept pressing him, that he made an oath and says, I don't know the man. Oh, there it is, Matthew 26, verse 72. It says there, but he denied with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. And then a little later, they kept pressing him, and he cursed, verse 74, and swore, saying, I do not know the man. And then immediately, the rooster crowed. So, as you pointed out, he, first off, made a, a rash oath, right? But he went out and went bitterly. He understood what he did was wrong. So, anyhow, just, just kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. And, of course, forgiveness is available. But as we've been saying all along, better not to vow, or better to... Make a promise with, I don't know if you want to call it a disclaimer that says, hopefully I will try to do X <laughs> as an example, or unless something comes up, I will do X as opposed to just saying, yep, I'll be there <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah, I think that's
1: good advice. just one other quick thought on that. I mean, I think we probably all would agree that, you know, surely meant well, many people mean well when they make promises. But as you said, first off, it, it's better just not to do that. And And the other is. You also said you don't need to do that, right? In other words, why do sometimes we feel the need to say, I promise, I will? Just be a person who's trustworthy, and then you don't ever have to say stuff like that. So anyhow.
0: I like that. Okay. So, Brian, for you, Patrick writes in, what is the meaning of the following words and phrase? The first commandment with promise, as stated in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. I understand it relates to verse three, that the promise is that an obedient child may be well and live long on the earth. Is there a second commandment et cetera, with promise somewhere in the Bible? I do not understand what the first commandment with promise means. And I, I think he's focusing on the first. If there's a first, that implies there's a second.
1: <laughs> second. That's right. And yes, Patrick is correct. You know, this was the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that was attached to a promise. And that's why some translations like the American Standard Version add an A to Ephesians 6-2 so that it says, the first commandment with a promise, they should honor their father and mother. So as it says in verse 3, that it may be well with you and you may live on, long in on the earth. And what's interesting is once again, depending on what translation you use or that you look at. Like, for instance, I use the New King James, and I noticed in this version that it puts a colon after verse 2. Uh, the King James version puts a semicolon, and some translations, like the New American Standard, and put a comma so that it's evident what follows in verse 3 is directly related to what is mentioned in verse 2. So, once again, going back to that statement, you know, that this is the first commandment and promise that they should honor their father and mother so that it may be well. And that they may live long on the earth and so those two things are linked now as far as a second commandment with promise there is none mentioned in scripture and if you go back and look at the ten commandments this was the only one that once again had a promise associated with it so there were no second commandments with promise uh, in the scriptures Jeff,
0: gotcha now having said that you know, I, I vaguely recall there's some commands, you know, in the Old Testament that say, you know, if you're faithful and obey my word, you know, I'll bless your crops and your animals, etc. But uh, I think you made the good point that, you know, this this is certainly the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that has a promise. Not that there's a first, second, third, fourth, you know, exact numerical order kind of thing, if that makes any sense.
1: It does, and I think it also points out that there were some elements or some laws, I guess nine, maybe we should put it this way, nine of the Ten Commandments were brought into the law of Christ. And so we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I'll just say that Certainly here in the U.S., if you go into some courtroom, sometimes they'll have the Ten Commandments posted, or it could be a school or whatever. They post the Ten Commandments. We need to follow these. Well, we're not under the old law, so we don't follow the Ten Commandments. But this is an example of a commandment that was brought over and restated by Jesus in the law of Christ, and so therefore it also applies under the New Covenant. And so we just want to make sure we make that distinction that, no, we don't follow the Ten Commandments today. Yes nine of ten, all but worshiping on the Sabbath, were brought into the law of Christ and stated clearly that they were laws that also applied under the law of Christ. Good point. All right, Jeff, uh, so Juan asked the next question, and he says, or asked, what exactly did God break off from Israel for their unbelief? Do they not get the promises anymore?
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes we'll get questions where a person will ask something about the Bible, And it's kind of vague and they do not provide a verse. And so we have to kind of assume maybe what they're referring to. Uh, In this particular case, I'm assuming he's referring to Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. In fact, Brian, do you wanna go ahead and read uh, Romans 11, 17 through 24? Sure,
1: here it says, beginning in verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Verse 19, you will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these... Who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree?
0: Yeah, an interesting uh, analogy, if you will, or, or, or uh, you know, metaphor from farming and raising crops, trees, uh, fruit-bearing trees, etc. Of uh, and I think even today we have like hybrid roses, uh, very similar, where they have one kind of rose grafted into the root of another rose. Of course, within the context, you know, we're not we're not talking plants; we're talking people with Jews uh, and their heritage and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their physical descendants. And now the Gentiles also uh, have been sort of, you know, grafted into that root, into that heritage, into those promises. So going back to Juan's question, what exactly did God break off from Israel for their unbelief? Well, not quite. It's not that God broke off something from Israel. Is that God broke off, if you will, certain Israelites, uh, the unfaithful Jews, uh, basically that Paul is referring to, who because of their unbelief regarding the gospel, you know, they were separated from God, severed from a relationship with him, you know, severed from the promises, if you will. And as Jesus says, you know, back in John chapter 8, verse 24, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we're talking about, you know, b- breaking off individual branches because of unbelief, grafting in branches because of their belief. And in essence, that kind of points to a, a change, as you said mentioned earlier, you know, a change in the covenant, you know, the old covenant between God and the physical descendants of Abraham. Has now been replaced by the new covenant that you mentioned earlier uh, between God and basically everyone, anyone who believes and obeys the gospel, not just the physical descendants of Abraham, not just Jews, uh, as you mentioned back in Galatians chapter 3. A similar uh, passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 13, and I'll let our our uh, listeners you know, look that one up, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13 basically uh, draws this distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, or the first covenant and a better covenant that replaces it that you kind of mentioned uh, earlier. And that uh, conclusion, verse 13, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete and it is now out of date and will soon disappear. And if that kind of confuses people, or what you said earlier about, you know, the Ten Commandments confuses people, at our website, look under L for Law of Moses.
1: Yeah, very good, and you know, it's interesting, we balance the fact that we are not under the Old Covenant with the fact that it still has value. You know, Romans 15, 4 talks about those things that were written before, you know, in the Old Covenant are written for our learning. Uh, There are many examples and many good principles, I think of Psalms and Proverbs, for instance, where those principles are timeless, and often... Restated in the, in the law of Christ, but uh, there's a lot that we can learn. So there's still tremendous value under the old law.
0: Good point. All right, I guess that brings us down to the eighth and final question uh, submitted by Ding. How do those who believe salvation can be lost defend their stand in the face of Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 38 through 41, in which or which states that God Himself promised that He will keep true believers from turning away?
1: Fair question, and uh, let's apply some Christian apologetics, right? Let's defend the truth here. And so uh, let's go ahead and read Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41 here. It says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me yes I will rejoice over them to do good and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul okay so I could see how you know dang reading verse 40 or anybody reading verse 40 where you know it says I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not depart from me might, some might conclude that means well they're they can't God is controlling this. God is ensuring that they will remain faithful and so forth. But that's not really what's being said here. So, you know, if you look at what's actually being taught, first off, you know, God is not promising to quote unquote, keep true believers from turning away as Dang mentions, but instead he is causing them to have fear. And when you look up that Hebrew word fear, it means reverence and being afraid. So it's kind of a combination Hebrew word where you have awe and respect, we might say, for God, but yet at the same time, you're afraid of God because of his power, because he can punish us and all of that. And so that kind of fear will often prevent his people from departing from the Lord. So it's it's not absolute. You know, we were talking earlier about how some people, you know, can fall away right it's not uncommon for people to fall away so we know it's not like okay if you're a christian god's guaranteeing you'll never fall away well we know you can fall away we see many examples of that in the new testament now as we referenced earlier calvinists would have us to believe that god will not allow those who he has supposedly chose to be saved to be lost this is known as perseverance of the saints but this is not taught in scripture and, you know, just one example of the scriptures talking about how we can fall away can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, where it says, take heed lest you fall. And it's specifically talking about falling away from the Lord. And so, you know, it's it's interesting to me, Jeff, how it's so easy sometimes to take what we read either at face value or, you know, like it just must be saying this when as you dig in you start to see well that can't possibly be true because it would conflict with so many other biblical principles and it goes back to your point about harmonizing everything right we the only way we're going to know the truth is to make sure that whatever we might believe harmonizes with the rest and doesn't conflict with the rest of truth
0: yeah good point you know the other thing i just might mention is sometimes you'll you'll encounter i think situations where you have words like you for instance and so is it referring to specific individuals, or is it perhaps referring to a class of people? You know, for instance, you know, with Christians and promises to Christians and Christ's church and his body, et cetera. And even here in Jeremiah, verse 38, you know, they shall be my people. You know, in some cases, it's referring to the collective, to the class. And I know that's kind of also related to the subject of predestination, which is yet another aspect of Calvinism, as you mentioned, where you know God wants a certain class of people uh, to you know be saved. and that has been predetermined from the infinite past, not specific individuals, but the class or type of people. Uh, and so that that's yet another subtlety, if you will, you know when it comes to Bible uh, Bible study or Bible hermeneutics, you know understanding the the audience that's being spoken to. Brian, that takes us to the end of the question. Do you have any uh, sort of summary comments before I point listeners to our website?
1: Yeah, just a couple quick things. One is it's our hope that as we've gone through this podcast that everybody understands that God takes serious any promises or oaths that are made and, and has very clear guidelines around that. So we do not want to be rash. I think that's come across. Hopefully it's come across. The other thing, Jeff, that really struck me as I was looking through once again these verses on promises and oaths and so forth is how many times that you see men who did not believe in God or Jesus still understood how important it was to keep a vow. So you can see when this was instituted under the old law, how even once again, these ungodly nations still followed these godly principles. They understood them. And so I was thinking about under the the law of Christ, just one example of Herod. And you might remember, for those of you that are familiar with the story, that he made a rash oath for his daughter Herodias when she danced for some of his guests. And I want to just really quickly read one section here in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, it says, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and it pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now notice verse nine, and the king was very sorry or was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with them, he commanded it to be given to her. So verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And so that's an example of where Herod understood that when you make an oath, you need to keep it. And I think there was another one like this, right, Jeff, under the Old Testament, where like the first... Thing that comes out of my house, y'all, was it like sacrifice to the Lord? And it was his daughter that came out of the house. Yes, Jephthah's
0: rash vow.
1: (laughs) There you go. So just a couple of examples of people making rash vows, but also that they understood that they needed to keep those oaths, even if they were ungodly.
0: Good thoughts. And like we always do at the end of our podcast, uh, refer our listeners back to our website where we've got lots of material for their continued study uh, on... The subject of the podcast, and that's certainly true with today's. If you go under the topics menu item, you can find P for promises, O for oaths, and for obedience, F for faith, F for forgiveness, as well as C for covenants. Likewise, if you go under the podcasts menu item, uh, we have episodes 83 through 89, which was a series on Calvinism. Episodes 101 and 102 on how to properly study the Bible. Uh, and likewise, Episodes 33 and 135, uh, two different podcasts on uh, forgiveness. Uh, like I said, under the uh, podcast uh, page, if you go down there, you'll see a kind of a chronological or reverse chronological uh, list of podcasts in numeric order. But you also see some uh, topical sections on that page with the episodes organized by topic as well. And as we always like to say, you know go to the website, avail yourself of the material, you know study the articles, you know listen to the podcast, et cetera, and more importantly, compare all of that with what the scriptures say and compare and contrast and do what the scriptures say. Don't just take our word for it.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions Podcast. We invite you to visit our website, BibleQuestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered, and you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.